some of the four core principles or values that a lot of authors talk about that drive indigenous systems are respect, reverence, reciprocity, and responsibility. Uh, some people add in there um, relationality, you know, seeing things as your relative, being in relationship, focusing not so much on the nouns, but the verbs that connect them, the connective tissue between things rather than just things. Respect, reverence, reciprocity, responsibility. You know, if those are our inner if that's our inner architecture and, and what we believe is important, our values, in other words, our systems are naturally going to reflect that. Welcome to Science and Non-Duality. What is non-duality? The universal forces. It's the collective conscious being aware. Trauma is not the external event that happens. Trauma is the impact of that event, which is the disconnection from ourselves. That matter is energy. Energy is matter. That's what EMC squared is about. There's a language without nouns. There is a language without subjugation. There's a language without objectifying. But if it's recorded, then we there is a collapse. But if it's not, then it's the infinite potentiality. Morning. Good afternoon and good evening, everybody. Uh, my name is Zaya Benazzo. My name is Maurizio Benazzo. Yes, I'm from Bulgaria. Uh, we live in California on Pomo, uh, southern Pomo land. And currently we are in Brazil in a place called Alto Paraiso, which is the land of the Awa indigenous people who have, unfortunately, there's only one family, family left. left. Uh, they were very quickly killed, all of them, by the Portuguese when they invaded mm. in the 1800s. Well, the first area that they strongly invaded and eliminated the indigenous people fully. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah we are here in Brazil because, just to, to frame it, we are here in Brazil for our film project. We are going all around the world uh, following stories of indigenous strength and resilience all over the world. And we, are, we just finished shooting. We are. So it's just we are here today and tomorrow we go back home. Okay. We've been here for a month and today we are delighted to be in conversation with Lila June. Thank you so much, Lila, for joining us. And it's so good to see you. Uh, I, we haven't seen each other in six, seven, eight years uh, from the same stage. So it's really nice to, to be with you. Yeah. And Maurizio will do a brief introduction, yeah, I do and the then we'll let you introduce yourself. Yeah, okay. I'm going to do the formal reading introduction. So, Lila June Johnson is an indigenous public speaker, artist, scholar, and community leader. Her message is focused on indigenous rights, supporting youth, traditional land stewardship practices, and healing intergenerational and intercultural trauma. Her internationally acclaimed presentation are conveyed through the medium of poetry, music, and or speech. She recently received her doctorate at the University of Alaska in Indigenous Studies with a focus on Indigenous food system revitalization. Her website is www.lilajune.com. Well, Pleasure and joy to see you again, Lila. Just so everybody knows, we'll start with a brief conversation with Lila and then open for your questions and uh, interact directly with Lila. Okay, there you are. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Can you hear me? Yes. So, greetings, everyone. So happy to be here. Um, honored, in fact. And uh, I'm grateful that we could share this space and this time together. Um, I'll just introduce myself properly first before I get into our topic today. I uh, hope you all are having a beautiful morning, uh, wherever you are. Um, and I hope that this can be a space where we can come together as community and, um, and uh, resonate and, and learn from each other. Um, so, uh, greetings, my relatives and my people. I am from the Nanishtajitrachitni clan of the Dene nation. Uh, this clan I, is my mother's clan. 
you know, we are a matrilineal people. And she got the clan from her mother and so on. And all of my brothers carry this clan too, because they come from the same mother. So instead of getting our last names from our fathers, we get our last names from our mothers in Diné culture. Uh, so yeah, that's, that's one of the clans of Diné people. We are also incorrectly known as Navajo. We have, uh, I think over a hundred clans and it's very important to know which clan you are because it, it says who you can marry, who you can't marry, what your responsibilities are, where you're from, uh, who you are. Um, and then my second clan, if you're introducing yourself kind of from a Diné way, is, is your father's mother's clan. So I, that my father's mother is um, which means I am born for the Tsetsis clan. And Tsetsis is the Cheyenne word for Cheyenne. So um my 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 father's mother is a Southern Cheyenne from Anadarko, Oklahoma, uh, because her mother was and her mother was and her mother was. So it's um that's that that matrilineal line. Otto, my third clan is my mother's father's clan, and he is Diné as well, and he carries the Salt clan of the Diné. Um, and that is um your third clan, and my fourth clan that I mentioned is my patrilineal, my father's father which as far as I can tell is of European clans. I know that I am part Scottish and perhaps other things too. I mean, I'm sure other things too, um, but definitely Scottish is in there. Um, uh, Taos, New Mexico, Dayton, Sean. That's where I'm from. Literally, that means that's where I walk around. Dayton, Sean. Um, Otto, um, also... Um, um yeah my mother is uh pat mccabe well yeah maybe you know her <laughs> she kind of i think she's worked with sand quite a few times um otto my father is thomas johnston uh so that's how we introduce ourselves as Danette people we state our clans and our parents and and then we say in that manner i am a Danette woman so um that is how I have to start by protocol. Um, so getting into our topic, you know, there's so much we could say, uh, but I think what I'll do is I'll start with, um, you know, the, the outer landscape part, because uh, it's very interesting. Some of you might have seen some of my talks before, so I apologize if it's redundant, uh, but I think this one will be unique for the most part um, overall. Um, but yeah, my, my dissertation focused on indigenous land management, uh, pre-colonial uh, indigenous land management. So basically looking at the ways in which um, native people would enhance the natural food bearing capacity of the land um, in, in extremely, I want to say ingenious, but it's also like the depth of it is very common sense. You know, this is our mother. We take care of her. We take care of life and she's already taking care of life. So if we just kind of step into what she's doing, it's, it's not so ingenious. It's just, um, plus living in the same place for tens of thousands of years, you know, all of our ancestors, no matter who you are, if you go back far enough, they, they had honed the science, uh, and, and indigenous peoples the world over, including in Europe, Africa, Asia, Australia, have been targeted and destroyed by empire. Um, and it's, it's part of that coyote spirit that's trying to destroy the parts of humanity that are connected to creator, connected to the earth. Because in theory, coyote's just kind of over the whole thing and he can't hurt creator, so he does the next best thing, which is hurt creation. Um, and so a lot of trickery happens, a lot of temptation of like, Oh, if you destroy all this, I'll give you all this land, you know, I'll give you the riches. I'll make you emperor. You know, so many empires throughout time have been seduced by this intoxicating power um, and have destroyed others in exchange for that power. So there's a lot there's a spiritual battle going on as well, which is very much connected to the ecological battle um, that we're facing. Um, 
So anyways, looking at the ways in which native peoples would tend the land. Uh, and so um, the, the food systems that were created out of that. So I'm just going to go through a few different examples of those food systems. Um, I, I find storytelling to be the most effective way to try to explain these things. Um, concrete examples, concrete um, stories that we can hold on to. Um, and then pivoting to like the inner landscape of, you know, okay, we saw, we see these indigenous food systems are 6,000 years old. We know they, you know, 35% of the coastline has a clam garden on it. Um, we know that it's 14 kilometers long, blah, 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 all of the physical things you can measure, but like the invisible world, the inner landscape, human heart, on it. what is it that moves a human to care for a clam <laughs> you know what is it that moves a human to care for the buffalo to care for uh the birds the butterflies the trees the the, the forest you know what what is that inner landscape that motivates uh homo sapiens to be a steward or Conversely, what is the inner landscape that motivates a human being to, to take everything for themselves? Um, and it's, it's, it's not, maybe not what you think. They're not horrible people. They're scared people. <laughs> There's a difference. And um, <clears throat> how does that fear, that inner landscape of fear drive the world around us in many ways? Um, so, okay, let's start with the stories of the outer landscape. So, um, <clears throat> One of the stories I like to tell is, is takes place in a place called Kentucky um, that we call Kentucky. Uh, this is the ancient homeland of different nations, including the Shawnee. Um, there is fossilized pollen records that indicate that Shawnee ancestors took care of a chestnut grove for 3000 years straight. So what we can do is we can uh, take out a soil core from ponds, uh, anywhere where water collects and it doesn't have like a spillway, it just stays there. You can look at the pollen that falls on the surface of the pond and then sinks to the bottom and then um, fossilizes. And so you can take out a soil core from the base of the pond and look at sometimes up to 10,000, 20,000 years of information of different fossilized plant, uh, plant pollens, and, and you can kind of reconstruct the forest uh, composition looking at these fossilized pollen records. So one of these soil cores was really fascinating because it showed a lot of cedar and hemlock for a long time. And then about 3000 years ago, the cedar goes away almost completely. And you see this influx of chestnut pollen out of nowhere. And then about a thousand years later, you see an influx of black walnut pollen out of nowhere, never existed there before. You also see a hickory nut sort of come in strong about 3000 years ago. You also see domesticated sunflower, thump weed and goosefoot. All plants that native folks had semi domesticated as a food source. Um, and so what happened was uh, you also see an uh, influx of fossilized charcoal. So it's very interesting to see how all of a sudden, um, hold on one second. Uh, sorry. Um, how all of a sudden you have this steady presence of charcoal. So the way we interpret this is that about 3000 years ago, humans decided to create a food forest that was managed with routine fire and that pollen profile if you will continues for 3000 years until about 1830 the chestnut has a precipitous decline which as some of you may know the american chestnut almost went extinct in the 1800s due to a blight a fungus because americans did not know how to manage the chestnut they started to fall into disrepair and it's hard to find a purebred american chestnut 
anymore. They're almost completely gone. So um, um, this food system was cared for with routine fire. So let me explain a little bit about how important fire is for indigenous land management. So uh, when you burn the understory of a food forest, you're doing several things from what I understand, from what I've gathered from the research is you are transforming all of the, the forest litter, the branches, the needles, the leaves, whatever. You're transforming it into nutrient-dense ash, which then feeds the soil. And it speeds up the composting process. Instead of waiting a year, two years, three years for this leaf to become mineralized or bioavailable for root systems, you actually just do a burn and boom you inject all of that biomass into the soil as bioavailable mineralized nutrients. Um, this stimulates the microbial activity of the soil. Um, and it also uh, keeps down the fuel load so you don't have these catastrophic fires. Uh, burning was and is so important to native people that within our lunar calendars, a lot of the Midwest tribes and the Plains tribes in the fall, their lunar calendar is there's a moon, a full moon that demarcates it's time to burn the grasses. Some people call it the grass burning moon. Some people call it the smoky moon, etc. And so this is their calendar of care, calendar of stewardship that they would follow. And in many places they still do by, by, by sheer miracle, you know? Um, and so that's how important it was to burn every year. So when you do that every year, you keep the fuel load down you don't have these catastrophic fires. And as you can see in the Shawnee territory, 3000 years of routine burning, um, plants start to become pyro adapted. So there's certain plants that can only grow in the wake of fire. Uh, the longleaf pine, the endangered longleaf pine montane forest, for example, those seeds need fire to germinate because their husk is so thick that only something that can really break it down can uh, help those tree seeds germinate. Um, so another thing you're doing when you burn the understory is you are also getting rid of pests, you know, ticks, um, and you're also keeping the competing vegetation down. So you have your old growth chestnuts. And I wish I had my slideshow, but my internet's acting crazy. So I have to talk to you on my phone and I can't run the slideshow on my phone. Um, but we have these pictures of these gigantic chestnut trees, right? Like six feet diameter, seven feet diameter trees um, that used to be here. And what you have is you have your old growth spaced widely apart. That's how we prevented the fungus from taking things out because that fungus couldn't travel so far so easily. But now you have these forests that are, everything's growing close together and pine beetle, different types of things can rip through it a little more easily, including fire can rip through. It. But we used to have like 13 trees per acre you know, very sparse trees, but they were old growth and they were allowed to billow out. Whereas now, if you look at a lot of our national forests, they're just letting it go. They're just letting it grow wild, so to speak. And it's all close together and they're all tall and skinny, right? They're all fighting for the canopy. They're fighting for sunlight. So they're not allowed to billow out and be a tree because they're so close. They're so packed. But when you space them out and you burn in between, you're any sapling that come up, you're kind of burning them down and, and nothing ever really has a chance to overtake the grasslands and the meadows that you've created in between these old growth. So you have old, you often would have a, a profile where you'd have these old growth, mast trees, nut trees, uh, and the chestnut was a huge staple for the tribes of the East. They grew from Maine to Georgia. It was a imp really important food source. Um, and then in between, you'd have these grasslands, which provided uh, pasture for buffalo, elk, deer, 
uh, and and we believe horses uh, where there's really cool evidence coming up that there were horses here before Columbus and they did not die out in the ice age. And that was a lie, but that's a whole other story. But anyways, pasturage for grazing animals. So you kind of attract by burning, you attract all of these relatives, we call them that also were a source of protein and you would feed them with fire, that fire would give them good nutrient dense grasses and they would feed you of their body. They would um, give of their body. And there was that reciprocity. We wouldn't over hunt. We wouldn't over harvest because we knew that their families were as important as our families. And that's that inner landscape. Understanding this is your kin, that these animals and plants are your equals. That's part of the inner landscape that we have to re architect within ourselves to, to, to use our eyes to see the world as a relative again. Because if, if these deer are your relative, you're not going to hunt them to extinction um, because their families are equal to yours. Why would they be any less important? That's like hunting all of you down to extinction. We would never think of doing that, right? That's called genocide. But when it's an animal, it's just called industry you know, or profit, you know. But if we can see that killing off the oysters, killing off the chestnuts, killing off the deer is, is on the same level as genocide, that's when we know our architecture in, inside of us is, is healed because we're seeing these things as equals again. And we're adding the same magnitude and the same weight of, of, of the sorrow and tragedy of the extinction of their people as we would ascribe to human populations. That's when we know we're, 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 we're getting there. When we see that as as equal of a tragedy as the genocide of human groups, um, when we put on an equal um, value. So anyways, this food system is one that was carefully curated, carefully manicured, carefully sculpted, by indigenous ancestors for what we can tell 3000 years in this specific location. Of course, there might be other locations that were, weren't recorded in the pollen record um, that might be older. You know, it's, it's just a lucky little place that we found in Kentucky that could tell us this kind of information. Um, speaking of which, you know, there's um, a really great book called Forgotten Fires by Omer Stewart. And I'll give you all a reading list. You know, you could email out a reading list after this. Um, and this book talks about all the different ways that Native people burn uh, what we call America and parts of Canada he goes into. Um, and it was written in 1908. And he talks about a lot of, or he invokes a lot of citations, a lot of writings, a lot of diaries from people in the 1800s and 1700s who were watching Native people burn this whole continent. Saying, oh yeah, the Indians are burning the prairie again, you know, like hundreds of citations. Um, Yosemite, you know, the national park that we all love and know is, has a lot of interesting records of, you know, white colonists, white um, naturalists, observing like, oh, this valley is, is burned every year, you know, and the native people have turned it into a beautiful meadow. Um, so a lot of the beautiful splendor that we, you know, that John Muir and stuff and, and, and um, I'm blanking his name, Aldo Leopold and all these early white conservationists uh, that they fell in love with was actually a product of human uh, management, human uh, creation, co-creation with nature. Um, and then John Muir had the uh, ignorance to say, oh, these Indians, they, they're savage and dirty and half happy. And they lead a strange life in this clean wilderness. You know, he saw us as a pest. And a lot of uh, national forests were vacated of indigenous peoples to create the park system we have today. Uh, when in fact the beauty of those parks was owed to the very people that they kicked out. Um, so I could go on and on about that, but I will move to a different uh, context. So one of the other things I like to talk about is the clam gardens. 
So in the Pacific Northwest, uh, people have expanded clam habitat with their bare hands, as far as we know, for about 6,000 years. The oldest clam garden rock wall that we can find is 6,000 years old. So um, according to certain dating methods. Um, so basically um, what they would do is create these intertidal rock walls. So every time the tide would go up and back down, this wall would catch water and sediment up here and kind of create this, this calmer uh, waters. And, and they observed, okay, the clams proliferate in this type of conditions. So let's proliferate those conditions to proliferate the clams. So there's one island called Quadra Island in Can what we now call Canada, that is um, actually... 35% of the coastline, and this is a big, uh, a big island. It's not a little bitty island. It's a big old island. Um, uh, they, 35% um, of the coastline is covered with uh, this, these ancient rock walls. So we're talking kilometers and kilometers of human intervention to expand and augment clam habitat. Now, if you read the literature, what little places where indigenous voices are represented, you know, that inner landscape, that place that you can't measure, you can only hear through words, through songs, through stories, through somebody's belief system, is that they see the clam as having their own nation. They have their own community, their own people, if you will. And sometimes I've been trying to say something like, just because clams aren't human doesn't mean they're not people. <laughs> and, uh, how do we see these beings as people? So the point of this system was not just to feed humans, but to, again, to reciprocate with the clams to create their home to make it bigger. So a lot of these food systems were about feeding your food, uh, honoring your food and honoring your uh, honoring their personhood. And, and acknowledging, wow, they're just trying to get along like the rest of us. They're just trying to make a living and feed their kids like the rest of us. Let's help them. They've fed us for thousands of years. Let's, let's assist them. Let's support their, their life. And oftentimes when you build up the, the, the bottom of the food chain, you end up building everything else up too. So birds would come and it was this weasel. It was we or otters, one of those cute animals would eat the um, clams as well. So as they built up the clam gardens, they built up the food web and the biodiversity of the entire island system. So, you know, that's another interesting um, example of the food systems. Um, we also see in Australia, these eel farms. So eel are a catadromous species that go in and out of freshwater to saltwater. Um, very few aquatic species can transmute themselves to go back and forth. And so the eel, they spawn in the ocean and they go into freshwater to hang out and mature, maybe meet, you know, each other and hang out. So um, when the, the salmon are the opposite, they'll go into the freshwater to spawn and into the ocean to hang out and mature. Um, so as the eel would be going back and forth, we find these other 6,000 year old stone uh, traps, um, funnels, uh, pools, um, holding ponds, and the eel coming in and out of that system, they would actually divert them into little places for easy harvest. But again, if you read the literature, they have so much reverence for this eel, that this eel is, is equal to them in every way. So you can't over harvest. And as much as you harvest, you have to give them a life, give them a home, support their families. So they're really careful to make sure the little eels uh, make it out to uh, um, make it back up and, and let the big eels make it out to spawn. Um, 
So there's very much an intentionality around supporting them. And if it lasted 6,000 years, then clearly they were not over harvesting and they were coexisting and they were sustaining these eel populations. So again, these eel are their relatives. They have extreme respect for them and they see them as their kin. Uh, and so they say, you know, we're not hunter gatherers. We're not just walking out hoping there's an eel. We've created a system where we can kind of create a predictable harvest, but instead of caging them, we just let them do their thing, their natural migration. And we kind of funnel a few of them off to the side for e easy harvest. Um, and, and one of the beautiful things I came across in this journey was someone who said the most important part of the harvest is what you do not take um, is what you leave behind. That's the most important part of the harvest because that is the part that will ensure there will be a harvest next year. <laughs> and also like the selection, you know, there's, there's a, there's a, um, a rule of thumb within the, uh, Pacific, you know, salmon people that you always let the first salmon when the salmon come up to spawn, let the first salmon go. Do not catch them. Those are the strongest, the fastest. Let them go because when they have their babies, you're going to have strong, fast salmon babies. So they would actually harvest the trailing ones. And that's how over thousands of years, humans actually had a hand in the evolution of salmon species by selecting uh, the, the slower ones, for better or worse, I don't know if that sounds mean, but they would actually augment the strength and the power of salmon over thousands of years. So again, the most important part of the harvest is what you let go. Um, and so we weren't stupid, you know, we, we were geneticists in that regard. Um, you go to a place called Potato Park in the Andes, um, and they have developed over 400 varieties of potato. Uh, these folks have created potatoes that are good for wet years, good for dry years, good for high altitudes, good for low altitudes, good for this soil type, good for that soil type. And so we were absolutely geneticists and we still are. Um, a lot of people see Native Americans as spiritual nature people, which we are, but we're also scientists. We're also engineers. We're also adepts in the fields of architecture, ecology, uh, medicine, and so on. And so um, it's only colonization's need to dehumanize us that has distorted our character so much and miseducated all of us, myself included, about the, the, the sophistication and complexity of indigenous science and indigenous knowledge and indigenous culture. Um, so anyways, um, Another example I like to share is, um, and you said 30 minutes. Yeah, okay. Um, 30 minutes for q and I'm just trying to time myself. Um, another uh, example I like to share is here in the desert in the Southwest where, you know, it's dry. It's a dry place. Sometimes you go out in the middle of July and you're like, this is a dry, this is dry as a bone, especially right now, right? As, as the drought has kind of set in for the past 40 years. Um, basically, the way that people would harness what little water they have here is pretty extraordinary. So for example, there's this uh, Hopi brother that I've been ple uh, a pleasure to, you know, um, to know, Akima Honyomtewa. He will um, basically create little dams. Um, he calls it cupping. He'll cup the land at the base of a watershed. So the water will flow down and these little dams will kind of hold it there. And he said, he'll cup the land and, and catch the monsoon rains, right? Cause that's one thing we do have is a month, we have a monsoon season. And so every July we'll have a good couple of outbursts of precipitation. Um, and then the next day is dry as a bone again, right? So, but what you can do is you can kind of harness when that monsoon comes down the hillsides, you cup the land at the bottom of the topography and that creates a little pool and that pool will soak down into the ground. 
And the next monsoon come flood down into the ground. And what he's doing is he's actually storing water in this one little place. And he's not just storing water, he's storing nutrients. Because every time that, that soil comes down from the hills, it's bringing nitrogen with it. It's bringing phosphorus with it. All of the forest litter, all of the little uh, soil organic matter, the little leaves and what have you, they're coming down with it. And so he's storing fertilizer and water in this place. And he says he'll do that for a couple of years before he even plants the seeds. And then once he plants the seeds, I went out there on a hot, hot summer day. Everything was scolding hot. And he just removed maybe an inch or two of soil from the top and boom, right under it was wet soil in the middle of a blazing desert. Hadn't rained for weeks you know? <laughs> because he had stored water there and he actually maintains springs. There's actually ways that they funnel water to, to recharge springs. And so um, what he's doing is he can plant seeds in that place where he's stored the water, his beans, his corn, his squash, which by the way, are also selected to be the most drought resistant seeds and are attuned to that land. Um, and then he said, Lila, it cannot rain all summer. My corn will still grow because they're tapping into the water I've, I've charged right here at this station. And so that's how they do dry land farming. And so they've been doing that for eons, right? And they're big fields. They're not little baby fields. These are gigantic fields some, sometimes. Sometimes they're smaller, but a lot of times they're quite big. And the water seems scarce, but when the monsoons come, you better be ready to, to slow it down. And sometimes the monsoons are so strong, even your reservoirs break, your little dams break. So it's like in a place of seemingly water scarcity, there's actually water abundance if you know how to tap into it. Um, and so that is a way of dovetailing with nature, dovetailing with topography and letting nature do the work for you. You're not trying to reinvent the wheel. You're not piping water all the way from the Colorado River to create this golf course in Phoenix or whatever they do, you're actually saying, you know what, what's right here is enough. And I'm going to find a way to find those crevices in reality where gardens can sprout and, and work with her. Don't reinvent the wheel. There's already water here. Um, let me, let me read this John Muir comment. I love to talk about John Muir. Uh, what he had learned after spending time in initiative on connection with nature, he wrote, um, I hope he did become more enlightened because the way that he spoke about native people was, uh, atrocious, especially in the wake of the California Holocaust of native people. Some of you already know this, but there was a bounty on native heads for $5 a scalp in California in the 1800s. So you could get $5 a scalp that you brought to, um, uh, Sacramento. So I don't know if you could imagine like a bounty on black people or on white people, just because they're white, you know, you get $5 a scalp or just because they're black or just because they're Asian. That's how it was in California. So he was saying that we were strange and dirty and half happy, uh, after we were on the run for about a couple of decades from people hunting us. So yeah, we're going to look a little raggedy, you know, we're literally on the run, we're being hunted. Um, so yeah, I, I, I'm very curious if you have any more, um, you know, documentation of his more enlightened stage of life, because I would love to know about that. Um, but that's common for his time. You know, I, I, as crazy as this sounds, I don't judge him. He was a product of social Darwinism, you know, this notion that during his time, it was just taken for granted that white people were the most evolved people and other humans were actually not even human. They were a different species. They would call them a different species. The president of the first president of Stanford University, where I went, was a eugenicist. He just was wanting to, you know, uh, cleanse the, the earth of people of color because they were like a problem, you know, um, and, and white folks were 
the only things that really needed to survive. So, uh, so yeah. Um, but again, I don't, I don't judge John Muir. I think he was sadly a product of the currents of the time where they were all being indoctrinated in this notion of, of, uh, European supremacy. Um, so anyways, going into, but I would love any documentation of him speaking more kindly about native people so I can be more educated on that. Um, so, um, let's go to, let's go to the South. So one of the cool things about the American South is that there's a indigenous bamboo species and the bamboo species, um, is now reduced to about nine, uh, 2% of its original homeland. And the bamboo that used to grow in South Carolina, North Carolina, Georgia, um, Mississippi, Louisiana, um, even perhaps Kentucky, Tennessee, uh, Alabama, you know, this was a, a extremely sacred species. And there's the switch cane, which is the smaller, and then there's the giant cane, which was these big old, you know, types of cane. They call them cane, but really they're, they're bamboo. Um, and so this grew plentifully throughout the South. And what they would do is this species is a lot like a forest. You don't want it to get too crowded because remember there's limited sunlight, there's limited nutrients, and there's limited water in every system. There's probably other things too, other variables, but definitely those three variables affect plants a lot, right? Sunlight, sunlight water, and nutrients. So when you have a system that grows quickly, like bamboo, they can grow so fast that they actually collapse in on themselves because there's no sunlight in the center and they basically choke out. So bamboo depends on constant disturbance. Something needs to knock it down. Something needs to open it up. Get in. So that the cold or the root system doesn't just suck all the nitrogen out of the soil or whatever it is that it needs to survive. Um, you need to constantly burn it. You need to constantly harvest it. You need to constantly be in relationship with this cane for it to even be sustained at all. So um, with that said, a lot of us understand cane to be an anthropogenic community meaning Without human presence, it doesn't really go on. Uh, without human intervention, it, in other words, human and cane, they move together. Um, and this bamboo species was used to make arrows. It was used to make um, buildings. It was kind of like the hemp of, of the time. You know how you can use hemp to make everything? Bamboo, you can make structures out of it. You could make baskets out of it because they would peel parts of it and then weave these beautiful cane bamboo baskets that um, some people, very few people still know how to do. Um, flutes, they made excellent flutes, rafts, uh, jewelry, and this uh, clothing. This was an excellent and important species for a variety of uses. Um, and so the cane and the people were really like one in the same. Like, it's sort of like croissants and French people. Like, it's part of their heritage. It's part, it's part of their pride. It's part of their contribution. I am not joking. Those croissants are a great contribution to humanity. You know, the way they fold them a million times, then bake them. Um, and, and so it's sort of like taking croissants away from French people forever, you know, and saying, sorry, no more croissants. Are, are they still French? Of course they are, but there's a part of them missing, you know, um, there's other examples you could give, you know, um, I'm trying to think, you know, but there's certain species that various cultures become very, not just attached to, but almost they're one and the same. They are each other. So what happened was every time a colonist would see a cane break or these, these bamboo stands, they knew the soil was really healthy because of the constant burning, uh, the constant disturbance, something about the human cane interaction created these really nutrient dense soils. So what, uh, according to some literature that I've read, when people, when colonists would see the cane breaks, they would burn them down completely, destroy them and plant their own crops because they knew that was a great soil source. So cotton, 
did a number on the cane ecosystem. Cotton, there's a book called Raising Cane, um, and it talks all about how cotton replaced the cane ecosystem. Um, and you can imagine like taking away the croissants of the Southern people, so to speak, they, they lost a huge part of themselves and they're still working to regain it back right now. There is a, the indigenous peoples of Alabama are the Muscogee indigenous peoples and AKA Creek. Um, and they are extremely beautiful. They were removed during the Trail of Tears from Alabama and put in Oklahoma on a, what we called the Trail of Tears, but was really a, a very strategically designed um, death march. You know, they made the place really far away so that the people had to um, basically as many would die along the way as possible. They, they wanted us to walk really far, right? Um, and so, or else they could have just built a fort like 50 miles away, right? No, the fort had to be hundreds and hundreds of miles away. So we would, as many people would die and starve as, as they could along the way, uh, which is a Roman tactic, by the way. Romans had did this to Europeans long before Americans um, used it. Um, so anyways, uh, thank you, Marion. Um, so um, where was I going? Raising cane, da, da, da. So they would basically replace all of these cane fields with a cotton. And the Muscogee people have recently reclaimed about a thousand or more acres. I forget, but it's more than a thousand uh, in central Alabama. They have gone back home and they have purchased this great land base, which still is not very much compared to their old land base. And they started a language immersion eco village. So they only speak Muscogee there and they're bringing back the burning. They also have a grass burning moon. They're bringing back the harvesting of local plants. They're bringing back the sturgeon. There used to be sturgeon all throughout the South and they haven't, they've been extirpated. They're bringing back the sturgeon to the waters of Alabama. They're called Eganophologi. Maybe you've heard of them. I'll put their, it's kind of hard to spell. So it's like E-K-V-N is the first word, Egan. Uh, they have a, a different alphabet than, than we do, but, um, or a different, they use different letters for different sounds, but E-K-V-N is the first word. Um, and so it's very exciting how they're restoring a lot of these uh, bamboo species and other species back to the South. Um, but the point is, so one of the things that, the cane would do is it would feed the buffalo. We often think of buffalo in South Dakota, Montana, you know, Southern Canada, but actually the habitat was in the South, throughout the South, Louisiana, Mississippi. Um, uh, let me just see if my headphones to work. Sorry. No, it is not. Okay. So um, Louisiana, Mississippi, um, Georgia, there was buffalo. So the buffalo would feed on the bamboo because, you know, pandas like bamboo, but buffalo also like bamboo. So much so that when the Spanish came to the Gulf Coast and brought all of their cattle, they would use the bamboo as forage for their cattle as well. Um, so you have the humans burning the bamboo to open it up and make it grow fat. It actually grows faster after fire. Um, and then the buffalo would eat the bamboo and then the buffalo would feed the people. And then the people would feed the cane with fire and the cane would feed the buffalo and then the buffalo would feed the people. And then the people would feed the cane with fire and on and on and on. So there was this trifecta of humans, cane and buffalo. And of course there was more elements than that, but that was a very, uh, one, some of the big elements of this system. Uh, and they would hunt the buffalo, of course. Um, and so I, I like to mention that because we often don't pay attention to the South or the Southern tribes. Um, we often forget about the glorious ecosystems that went on there. Um, so now let's go to the inner landscape. Thank you for sticking with me. I know this is a bit of a long um, speech. So the inner landscape I found throughout the research is so important, you know, 
because I, I was starting out like a scientist does, like measuring, you know, how big is Quadra Island? How big was the, you know, how much percentage of the coastline had this? How old was it? You know, the, the who, what, where, when, like how many oysters were in the Chesapeake boy, Bay? You know, how many are there now? Less than 1% of their original population. Um, and I was just really obsessing over what you could see and measure. Um, and, I, and I realized over time that what was most important about these was the part you couldn't see, the human heart, the human mind, the inner cosmogony, cosmology, worldview, whatever you want to call it, that you can't really measure with a measuring tape. You have to sit with people and experience it and learn it and feel it um, in order to understand what drove these systems to success. So, um, for example, some of the four core principles or values that a lot of authors talk about that drive indigenous systems are um, respect, reverence, reciprocity, and responsibility. Uh, some people add in their um, relationality, you know, seeing things as your relative, being in relationship, focusing not so much on the nouns, but the verbs that connect them, the connective tissue between things rather than just things. Um, and respect, reverence, reciprocity, responsibility. You know, if those are our inner if that's our inner architecture and, and what we believe is important, our values, in other words, our systems are naturally going to reflect that. Um, conversely, you could take the exact same clam garden and hand it to a capitalist who has the value of extraction, um, profit maximization, self-aggrandizement, um, power, domination, and that clam garden will either change form and not be sustainable or it will collapse. And so the outer manifestation of the clam garden is not as important as the inner worlds that drive it. And so I think a, a lot of what we're trying to do in this call is we're trying to tinker with our value system, right? We're trying to refine it. We're trying to engineer it so that it's, it's, it's more successful for one thing, because I think we all agree. And even the mainstream is starting to agree. Our value system isn't working. It's leaving our children dead. You know, it's leaving the earth like and on and on, right? Like, there's no shortage of problems in the world. Um, and so we're starting to all be like, okay, maybe, maybe our value system not working. Um, but I would argue too, that until we, until we fix that value system to be one that's giving rather than taking, we're not going to solve our problems. All the Teslas in the world, all the magical vacuums that suck up all the CO2 out of the atmosphere until our inner landscape is truly healed to be one that is fearless uh, because to give there's no fear right you understand everything's okay you understand you're going to be okay you're going to stand understand there's enough for everyone there's no fear there you have to have a, a, a an overall sense of fearlessness to become a giving society once again um conversely Fear is driving extraction, right? And you have to have compassion for the European ethic, which is not really European. If you go back far enough, there was a lot of reciprocity, goddess culture. Um, I just went to France recently and there was 17,000 year old cave paintings in France, deep in these caves. And they're of buffalo, horse, ibex, um, pregnant women and this beautiful um, this beautiful cave paintings were proof that true European identity before the Roman uh, expansion, before the Inquisition, before the torture chambers, before the witch burnings, 
that it was a culture of reciprocity, of reverence, you know, that, that word reverence, because they're not drawing themselves, they're drawing the animals, you know, they have a respect and, and, an, and an interest in the beauty of these animals 17,000 years ago. There's also a, an, a clay effigy found in German soil. It's one of those Venuses, the woman, the fertility, the sanctity of the woman's body, which reflects the sanctity of the earth. You know, that feminine centricity. Um, they found it in German soil. They excavated it. And when they radiocarbon dated it, it appears to be 40,000 years old. So this is how long indigenous Europeans were shaping the earth to honor women, to honor the earth. Um, and so all of it's quite fascinating, really, and quite beautiful when you really tap into it. But anyways, we have to have compassion for this more recent manifestation of Europe, right? Where it's about extraction. It's about domination. It's about um, profit maximization, hierarchy, patriarchy, etc. Because you have to understand that coyote um, tortured this land for 2000 years straight. There's open warfare in Europe for 2000 years. And one of my elders said, the reason they're hoarding, the reason they're accumulating wealth is because when you come from that kind of war, you don't know if you're going to have food tomorrow. You better stock up. When a third of Europe dies overnight from a plague, oftentimes that unconsciously leads to overcompensation in other ways, right? Like, oh, I feel like I lost my masculinity because I couldn't protect my wife from burning. So therefore, let me get it in other ways. Let me dominate. Let me, um, et cetera, et cetera. So there's all this epigenetic stuff that we as Europeans are carrying that is extremely toxic to the world, <laughs> but it comes from extreme trauma. We're talking people getting dismembered publicly. We're talking people getting disemboweled publicly. We're talking torture chambers. We're talking nasty stuff. Um, they call it the dark ages for a reason, right? It was a dark, sad time. You know, people were not happy. They were not safe. So that's the type of trauma and war that this uh, hoarding culture grows out of. So you have to have compassion and understanding for the larger trajectory and the larger trends of history, which then unfortunately spilled over into the whole world. But you have to understand that even though Europeans came to America and they cut off all of our hair, they forced us to become Christians. They told, they, they murdered us in the name of the Catholic church because the doctrine of discovery, we weren't human if we weren't Christian, blah, 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 blah. You have to understand Constantine was doing that a thousand years before in the year 300s. He was conquering other Europeans and he saw a, a sign in the sky, supposedly that said in hoc signo vinces in this symbol, you will conquer. And it was a cross, you know? So he was conquering people, murdering them in the name of Christ a thousand years before they decided to use that playbook on Native Americans, you know? So you have to understand the, the inner landscape that we are healing is one of fear. And, and of course the antidote to that is faith, is trust, is forgiveness to release that pain that we carry and replace it with trust, uh, which some people call foolish. You know, some people call uh, our, our trust and our love for our enemies, they call it stupid, you know, but this is, this is the type of bravery, the types of limbs we're going to have to go out on and say, you know what? I, my cup is full. I want to give. You know, and that giving spirit is what's going to heal us. Um, the Lakota word for American was wasishu, which means he who takes the fat, he who takes all the best for himself. So we were very confused by this because luckily we had through trial and error, because we had made mistakes too, 
we had developed an ethic of generosity and we had a competition unspoken competitions within our societies of who could be the most giving, who could be the most kind, who could be the most humble, who could be the most brave, who could be the most humble is the most important one, who could be a giver. And, and of course, you've probably heard that a lot of the, the, the leaders of Native people were not people who had all the wealth, but people who gave away the most and took care of their people. So um, that ethic of giving, that outflow is incredibly important, a thing we have to heal. And I know I'm preaching to the choir here, but until we, um, until we release our fear and stop clutching onto our purses, you know, we're not going to heal that inner landscape that then allows us to be givers, to be, to have that responsibility to homeland, to say, Hmm, maybe my farm shouldn't just feed me and humans. Maybe I should create a farm that feeds all life. Maybe I should make sure there's milkweed here when the butterflies come back on their homeward migration because butterflies eat milkweed. Maybe I should make sure that I burn these grasses every year so that I attract and create forage for deer and elk. You know, maybe I should feed these sheep as much as I should feed myself. Maybe I should maybe even incur a cost. You know, what a crazy idea. Maybe we should actually spend money feeding the earth instead of using the earth to get money. Um, what a novel idea. And lastly, I'll just say that uh, the Yoruba nation they, in West Africa, their word for human is chosen one. And it's not to say we're chosen to be above or apart from nature, but we were chosen to be stewards of nature by the creator to be a gift to the earth. And these 6,000 year old food systems that I mentioned um, are proof that we have been givers. We have been keystone species in the past and we can do it again. A keystone species being one that is um, a linchpin within the smooth functioning of an ecosystem, like a beaver, they create these dams, right? And they create habitat for other beings. And without them, that whole system would collapse. And when they almost wiped out all the beavers in this continent, that had a huge ecological effect. So similarly, when they wiped out the, the Eastern natives of the East Coast, things also started to collapse. The chestnut collapsed, the bamboo collapsed, the oysters collapsed. So we were actually a keystone species. We upheld these things. We have proof people fished oysters out of the Chesapeake Bay for 3,000 years straight without end. Um, so we have done this in the past and we can do it again. We can be a gift to the earth. We can be those chosen ones that, that were chosen by the creator, given these big brains not to use them to outsmart nature and get stuff for ourselves, but to use these big brains to be like, oh, wow, if we build a little rock, right, rock wall right here, we can augment clam habitat. <laughs> we can give our gifts and perform our ecological role because we belong here too when, we're, when our values are right to heal and to be a, a gift so beautiful to the earth that if we were to leave, she would miss us.
They say that history is written by the victors. But how can there be a victor when the war isn't over? The battle has only just begun. And Creator is sending her very best warriors. And this time it isn't Indians versus cowboys. No, this time it is all the beautiful races of humanity together on the same side. And we are fighting to replace our fear with love. And this time bullets, arrows, and cannonballs will not save us. The only weapons that are useful in this battle are the weapons of truth, of faith, and compassion. So lay down your weapons, I come in peace to be a stand for life, for all things thrive where water is clean, water she says it is Thanks, everyone. Thank you for joining. Be well. Thank you. All right. Have a great day. And thank you for listening to The Sounds of Sand. We invite you to explore more of our talks, dialogues, videos, articles, events, and offerings through our website, scienceandnonduality.com. If you've enjoyed this conversation, please consider becoming a member to access our massive library of sand content available exclusively to SAN members. And we would love it if you could leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, Google, and Spotify, and share this episode with your family, friends, and all sentient beings. Be well. <laughs>